Welcome to the Christopher Peter Review. The Christopher Peter Review provides original podcasts discussing salient current events with a focus on the facts, evidence, and available data of the topics and issues selected. Now, without any further delay, here is Christopher Peter to begin your experience with the Christopher Peter Review. Enjoy! Welcome to another special edition of the Christopher Peter Review. Hope all is well. I read an interesting article recently about the tough choice that Taiwan is facing in the midst of the current tensions between the island and mainland China. It is clear that China will attempt unification by force at some point between now and the year 2027. That is the deadline our intelligence services believe Chinese leadership gave its military to be ready and able to take the island. While there appears to be a great build-up and exercises preparing for the possible engagement, there is no telling when the actual invasion effort will be undertaken. Some pundits factor in weather conditions, sea behaviors and climate to determine natural windows of when it would be most feasible to make such an endeavor. But who knows if a communist nation like China may try to be unpredictable to thwart any support effort by the United States and the West. Back to the article. The Wall Street Journal had an interesting article about the choice set that Taiwan is facing. Should the island decide to take the path of Ukraine and stand up to the communist giant to defend its perceived sovereignty and homeland? Or should they take the path that Hong Kong took and find some sort of negotiated solution that enables them to reunite with the homeland under terms and conditions that may be more palatable than all-out war? The Ukraine story is a heroic story still being written with a nation, who in all fairness was not considered a formidable army, is giving its Russian adversary, with a globally revered army, all the fight it can handle. An army containing a mixed trained soldiers and patriotic citizens willing to fight for their sovereignty, freedom, and homeland. The story is not over and continues to add new chapters each and every day. The heroism of the people cannot be undersold. Everyday people, not military trained. Some well past the age groups armed forces typically prefer to recruit from. These heroic individuals took up arms and decided they would fight the feared Red Army to the last man to defend their sovereignty. Even as nations in the West initially sat back idly and watched before their efforts inspired assistance. Their story is an inspiring and clear example of the patriotism we all should have for our nations and homelands. While we might appreciate their effort and their fight, there is still the reality that there is a great level of destruction. Cities leveled to the ground. Homes lost. Homes and cities can be rebuilt. The countless lives lost cannot be. There is a tragic and horrific cost that cannot be ignored. The odds still appear stacked against them. The counteroffensive does not seem to have changed much and the reported death rates paint a gloomy picture for the future. Of course the data may not be accurate, but still countless lives lost in a war that should not have happened. Projecting from that data, Ukraine may run out of troops long before Russia does, even considering the recent chaos in their own camp. From a statistics point of view, I am concerned about the potential for Ukraine to outlast Russia if they cannot make some headway soon. Regardless of whether you feel inspired by the Ukraine story or if you believe that your soldiers can match that level of heroism, there is a need to consider options to avoid war if possible. As it was said in the article, no war is preferable to war. An interesting aspect to consider is that Ukraine is a sovereign nation that Russia views as part of their own land using baseless historical premises. For instance, America used to be part of the British Empire. It would be a clearly ridiculous claim that we are part of them or that we need to be reunited. In contrast, Taiwan claims to be its own independent nation, but the world generally holds the view that it is part of China. The world has appeased China by accepting that Taiwan will eventually be part of China and that the Taiwanese government cannot be accepted as legitimate. Essential to retaining access to a nation with an abundance of low-cost labor and a shortage of concern over human rights, environmental standards, or safety.
given that our federal government's long-held default position is that Taiwan is an inalienable part of China, our only interest appears to be in its semiconductor industry. Something that might not be good for the rest of the world if China controls the global supply of these critical supply items. Part of the calculation Taiwanese officials will need to factor in is how much support they will receive if there is a need to defend the island from the mainland. Based on the initial Ukraine approach, much of the world sat around and watched, not expecting Ukraine to put up much of a fight. Would the world provide support to a nation that they already view as part of China? Can the world penetrate China's effort to shield it from support? Depending on how they answer these questions, they may feel like the better approach would be negotiation. During past reunification efforts, China has agreed to provide some levels of autonomy to the regions it reincorporated back into the fold. In 1997, China agreed in the Sino-British Agreement to afford protections to Hong Kong for 50 years, essentially through 2047, allowing it to keep its capitalist economy and democratic form of government. China offered a different legal system in Macau when it was returned to China in 1999. Maybe they can accept reunification with terms shielding it from the aspects of Chinese law that they find detestable. Maybe they will be able to find a peaceful solution that allows it to still maintain its culture and way of life and not fully be integrated into China. But I am not sure that China will honor those commitments based on its recent past. We are not anywhere near 2047, yet China already took steps to manipulate the Hong Kong government. The mainland government took steps to restrict political candidates, enforce new laws that prohibit dissent, and essentially create a pro-China government with a puppet democracy. I am not sure the Hong Kong option is as palatable as the Ukraine option either. So, if you are a member of the Taiwanese government, which option is more appealing? Fight for your existence and watch countless members of your nation lost to battle and much of the land leveled? Or do decide to take the path of negotiations knowing that the other side has no real intentions of operating in good faith? They are between a rock and a hard place with a deadline to make a decision coming soon. I think the decision set is a difficult one. The decision to fight a potentially unwinnable war is not an easy one to make. The Ukraine model is not a good fit. Ukraine is completely reliant on arms and supplies from NATO, which has not really moved the needle. A stalemate is not a good sign because of the aforementioned issue with troop levels. Also, Taiwan is an island. Ukrainians were able to flee across to Poland or other nations. Where are the Taiwanese going to head without the need to steer clear of Chinese naval ships? Also, this fact will make any effort to supply them or support them difficult because there is no safe avenue to move materials and munitions onto the island. On the other hand, negotiating with a party that has no interest in living up to its end of the agreement is not palatable either. Taiwan is the last piece of the puzzle for reunification. Although the world may politically view reunification as an inevitable outcome, the terms of that reunification is going to be a challenge. The target year of 2027 is not that far away and may come sooner if the Chinese military exceeds their deadlines and advances their technology requirements or simply can effectively exploit the Russian tension to its own advantage. The preferable outcome may be negotiation. The world does not view Taiwan as an independent nation and China may be effective in blockading the island, while causing economic disruptions in the Western nations that will prevent intervention. The protests and unrest in Hong Kong combined with the response from the Chinese government is definitely not desirable. But I think Taiwan may want to have its cities intact and people alive rather than have their cities leveled and still end up under China without any accommodation. I do not think there is any nation or national leader who wants to be in the position that Ukraine found itself in and what Taiwan currently faces now. Ukraine understood the realities of the iron-fisted Soviet-style rule that would happen if it did not stand up to the Red Russian Army. 
there was no real opportunity for negotiation. Since the Soviet collapse, it seemed to do everything it could to appease its Russian neighbor. Yet twice Russian troops crossed into its border. The reintegration of Macau, Hong Kong, and the autonomous zones China afforded Tibet and other regions may give hope that there is a potential for a negotiated solution that can allow it to transition in a manager that protects its people, society, with a requirement to not insult the mainland. A transition that the rest of the world expected to occur at some point. I think Taiwan has a much harder fight if it chooses the Ukrainian model because it is so much harder to support from a NATO perspective. China can surround the island faster than we can provide support and it has been preparing for this much longer than Russia prepared for its own illegal invasion. The Russian invasion of a sovereign nation of Ukraine is somewhat different as the global position of nations needing access to cheap Chinese labor except the one China position, where Taiwan is considered for all intent and purposes part of China. These same nations needing the semiconductors produced in Taiwan may change their perspective. But I wonder if the world would see it as an illegal invasion as well. There is one rule that all professions, all employers, and all career fields have in common. The better you perform at your job, the more leeway you get to enjoy, the more opportunities to make up for mistakes. That is the truth in politics as well. For instance, if the American economy was not thriving in the 90s and the United States was not enjoying an extended period of peace, the reaction to President Bill Clinton's extramarital affairs, and the use of staff to execute a cover-up would have been a bigger deal. In today's America, it would be a much bigger issue than in the 90s. Joe Biden and his administration are struggling like no other in recent history. There is no issue where the administration has been ahead of the curve, right on principle, or effective at the most basic level. The economy is overall stagnant, expensive, and thriving for only the wealthy, not the type of economy a Democratic president typically supports. I really thought that no president could be as unprepared for the challenges typically faced on the foreign policy front. But Joe Biden, who had more experience at the federal level than any recent president, continues to struggle with a completely weak and ineffective foreign policy. Consider his approach towards countering China in the global competition front. China offers developing nations troubling loan guarantees for infrastructure projects under the Belt and Road Initiative that will create a debt-level diplomacy putting China at the forefront of many critical regions. On the other hand, Biden believes that offering a less beneficial program with a bunch of radical left strings attached will counter the Chinese offer. Biden is falling in every aspect of governance and Americans are suffering greatly. For the most part, the suffering has been a choice of a poor set of public policy prescriptions that continue to fail society, reduce our safety, and harm our economic, social, and global future. The real economic harm, the dishonesty and distortions used to excuse poor outcomes, and overall chaotic leadership is putting the United States on the wrong path. To be clear, Joe Biden is not very good at his job. The most difficult job in the world. But he had the resume for it and he is not doing the job. So it is hard to give the fledgling president a pass on the continued embarrassments that he displays each and every night. The gaffes, the clear lack of capacity, the truly weird and inappropriate moments, and the poor personal judgment at the same time. For instance, our White House will never be confused to be a sanctity of moral high ground. But, the administration that claims to restore the rule of law to be the most ethical in history continues to contradict every narrative they expect the American public to believe. Cocaine being found in the White House is a troubling discovery. Now, there are probably many people who immediately felt that this explains a lot. 
Hard to imagine a completely sober administration being this bad at their highly prestigious and high-profile jobs. Maybe it explains why Kamala Harris is always cackling and giving incompetent responses to questions. Maybe it explains why Biden was shadow boxing in Philly, stating God save the Queen, man to an American audience well after the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, and muttering that he gave away state secrets. The real issue is that this is reflective of an administration that lacks leadership and accountability. A president who has a son with a known past with cocaine, especially with his strippers and prostitutes, now has a mysterious bag of cocaine found in the White House. There is a good to great chance that it is not one of the Bidens but it is a bad look. That same son with cocaine use issues also has issues with paying federal taxes, illegally owned guns, overseas business deals, and potential bribes allegedly involving his father. So one reasonably should question why in the world would this son, who already agreed to plead guilty to tax and gun crimes, be invited to state dinners. Not good judgment. Beyond the criminality of his son and associating with him at state dinners, much of the rest could be overlooked if the overall job performance was satisfactory and if people were not losing their household wealth while seeing their credit bills skyrocket. The biased media may want to laugh it off and overlook the chaotic leadership. But imagine if a Republican president led and acted this way, there would be nightly calls for impeachment and evoking the 25th Amendment. In this case, it might not be a good choice because of who his vice president is. I agree, cocaine in the White House can explain a lot. Performance does not excuse every mistake but it usually means that you will not be terminated at the first few mistakes made or that the offense made must be significant. The issue I have with the performance of the Biden administration is that failure was a purposeful choice that they made. They chose to double down on failing policies when they were giving many outs that they refused to take. They put ideology over leadership. Politics over the people. As Christopher Peter explained a few weeks back, inflation is not going down. The growth is just not growing as fast. They are willing to mislead us when they deem it beneficial to themselves or their political party or cause. We are getting to the point where the bad is becoming the baseline, affording them the ability to lie to the public while appearing truthful. I do not think that you should bring people pleading guilty to federal crimes, being investigated for influence peddling, and a host of other claims be a visible part of your administration. Especially when there are foreign governments involved at the state dinner. Just giving off an attitude that they can flaunt the law. The Biden experiment has been an utter failure. It is time to realize the hypothesis was wrong and maybe washed politicians should not be the focal point of either of our leading political parties. Especially when they lack physical and mental capacity and contradict everything they supposedly stand for. The media has been forced to acknowledge that something is not completely right with Biden and his administration, although many still downplay much of the failures and attempt to excuse away some of the bizarre behaviors that are unexplainable. The administration struggles to account for its own failures just offering narratives in place of facts. They call themselves historic when they are historically bad. They make claims about their economic performance that are pure disinformation. The economy is not doing well for the middle class. Each and every day we see signs that the administration lacks leadership, judgment, and common sense. Recently, we saw Joe Biden embrace a transsexual, who then in turn carried out a shameful display on the White House lawn, disgracing their cause and calls for visibility. There were real issues from a group and one of the extremists is who Biden decides to take a photo with. Did anyone vet who was invited to the White House for this regrettable event? Another regrettable moment was in Philly where two lack of capacity barely functioning Democrats who hail from the state of Pennsylvania just made a mockery. Also, I am not sure anyone can brag about fixing an event when it is not completely fixed, just temporarily addressed. 
let's see how long the real fix takes to implement. Now, there is cocaine found in the White House. Another incident that continues to shame this administration. I think this repetitive set of behaviors and incidents shows an administration that lacks direction, accountability, and leadership. The adults that are in the room cannot run the federal government. Do we really feel like a trip to China by Janet Yellen improved ties with China who still seeks to replace America in the world order? Still seeks to pursue economic, military, and diplomatic objectives that are a direct counter to our national interest? I think there is no real deterrent to China's effort to shift the world order. The Biden counter to China's strategy is not appealing. If you are a developing nation seeking support to improve infrastructure, would you choose the package that may have questionable terms but can get you some economic prosperity or the one with a greater number of strings attached with value signaling that you may not agree with? I think you may just take the higher interest rates than the high interest rates in social engineering. There is a lot of talk about America needing to operate out of a position of strength and our reputation on the global stage. The world watches how our leaders behave and deliver for Americans both in the global diplomatic arena and at home as well. They also see how well we coordinate global issues, like withdrawing from global conflicts in a manner that does not leave our own troops and personnel as well as the troops and personnel of our allies. Unfortunately, Biden did not do so well in that regard. Are our allies really trusting us and are we at the front of the table and not just another member? In the Economic Policy Forum, the outlook is not good either. The only area that is thriving in this economy is the wealthy. There is no doubt that inflation is directly correlated to the increases in the credit card debt that America is experiencing. I think it is important for people to be honest with what we are experiencing in our economy. Inflation is not receding. Rather the growth of inflation is decreasing, but still higher. The same political trickery is used in budget debates. Employment remains strong because companies are holding on to employees due to the difficulty of recruiting talent when many took advantage of pandemic-related policies that helped people stay out of the workplace. People now understand that they had better get back into the workforce. Now that the pandemic is officially over. But there are generally less opportunities available. The Biden economic team wants to look at the positive that we have narrowly avoided catastrophe by the collective skin of our teeth. But that is not the leadership we are expecting and not the position we should be in at this moment. This was a choice. Bad economic choices that created an environment of economic stagnant, inflation, and uncertainty. But maybe there will be a few more electric vehicles on the road. There are two things we probably do not need more of in our society. Talk shows and social media platforms. Meta Platforms released a competitive social media product to Elon Musk's Twitter called Threads. A social media experience that is questionably similar to Twitter. There are many people who are staunchly against social media even to the point where they want to control how others use the platforms. I am not at the point where I would classify it as a general threat to anyone's health or well-being. Like anything in life, there is a need to determine how something fits into your life and how to use it with the proper moderation. Life is about choices. If you choose to let social media feeds dictate how you view issues, determine what should be believed, or decide your personal worth, then the problem resides with the user, not the platform. Everyone has to determine how to have a healthy relationship with social media. Just like television. If you believe that television is the only source of entertainment and you must watch every episode of all your favorite shows, then you are missing out on a lot and potentially harming yourself with a sedentary lifestyle. Everything needs balance. While I am not fully willing to say that social media is a harm to our health, I do think behaviors of social media companies do negatively impact our democracy by how they attempt to manage speech in the biased approach driven by political leanings not facts, evidence, and available data. 
Our society does not have a realistic perspective of social media, as too many news media and commentators reference social media trends as being reflective of overall society, when we know it truly is not. We know the feeds are managed and the population of respondents on viral trends can be monolithic. I think social media does have a useful purpose in exchange of information by producers to prospective customers and by customers to inform brands about issues with their products. I do think the removal of barriers in communication is important and useful. I think we have to acknowledge the downside of social media. The anonymity afforded by social media creates an environment for some people to troll others in inappropriate manners. Also, issues with how people communicate can create emotional and hysteria-driven exchanges that are toxic. There are many people who are generally supposed to be intelligent credentialed individuals who astoundingly lack reasoning skills and logical and critical thinking. And we see that in commentary on social media, where people attack each other and cannot really articulate a valid defense or counterargument of a position. Again, it comes down to how one chooses to use the platforms and perceives the information. I do not believe people should use any social media for self-validation or should view social media as a legitimate source of facts or actual reality. I think it was important that a federal judge decided to formally prevent the federal government from coordinating with social media organizations. While they are private companies, the coordination is inappropriate and therefore can be seen as an effort to manipulate our democracy and potentially our elections. I have always felt that the default position should be to allow people to be exposed to things and for people to be able to present a counter-argument if they feel it is warranted. When you start coordinating what can be said or what people can experience, that is undemocratic. How can politicians who seek this sort of coordination feel they are on a higher moral ground than politicians in Russia or China both of which manage speech and what the public can hear? If democracy is better than autocracy then they need to demonstrate in their everyday behaviors and actions. Now, there are some questions that we need to ask ourselves. Should the solution to the issues society has with social media be solved simply with self-regulation? Are the real solutions to the problems we have with social media? And can we protect free speech at the same time? I agree that we do not need another social media platform. The Threads platform is eerily close in nature to Twitter. It will be very interesting if there is some legal battles over its design and if there are any violations of intellectual property occurring with the platform. I'm completely supportive of free speech and stand against censorship while at the same time cautious in allowing free speech to become a blanket buzzword that provides convenient cover for people to claim free speech when there is not really speech being made. We will talk about the political buzzwords in a later piece. There is a difference between offering speech that articulates a defense of a position or person or offers a valid counter and red herring attacks that should not be protected speech. Speech that I consider to be what is intended as free speech is statements that articulate a valid argument and reasoned position, regardless of whether the position is universally accepted. We should not just want to protect the speech that we agree with but to protect the right for people to voice a valid and reasoned opinion. Because we never know when we may have something that may be radical in this moment but reasoned and valid enough for society to come around to over time. Now we know most social media commentary are not logically drawn reasoned statements. Many of them are personal attacks against one side or the other. Derogatory terms, slurs, or threats. I do think that social media companies should take threats seriously when there is potential for violence and harm. I think it is important that people start to understand what a valid argument looks like. I'm going to give you two examples from opposite sides of the same issue. Regardless of what side you agree with, you should be able to see why each side is a valid argument. 
I believe I have the right to serve only the customers that do not require me to violate my strongly held religious beliefs or strongly held personal beliefs. By serving customers whose choices, behaviors, or attitudes are contrast to my views, I would be enabling and promoting these to exist, which violates my free speech as well as my right to religious liberty. I should not be compelled to violate my beliefs to enable behaviors that I object to when there are alternative options available to the individuals. A valid counter-argument would be. Business should serve all customers willing and able to pay without the need of any unreasonable accommodation. Providing service to a customer is not a promotion of an activity, but simply a business transaction. Refusing to do business with certain groups of people is discrimination, which all valid religions reject. So why are these valid arguments? They are both drawn from facts. People have the right to free speech and practice their religion. Based on these facts, the first argument makes the claim that the individual should not be compelled to violate their own rights for another when there are alternative providers. The counter-argument is also valid because it is based upon the fact that religion does not promote hate and draws upon how severe a promotion of business transaction would be in enabling an act that you might find objectionable. Both are valid arguments and should be free from censorship or removal. An argument is not considered valid if you attack the messenger rather than the message. If the counter-argument is you are a stupid bigot, that is an emotional response attacking the person not the argument. At the same time, it is probably not an adequate case for removal. But we can see the rabbit hole that social media companies have to deal with in balancing protecting free speech and removing content that is intended to harm, incite violence, or bully. The real question is how well these companies maintain these standards, and are they consistent regardless of ideological backgrounds? Again, it is important that one is willing to understand the need to protect the free speech rights of a valid argument regardless of your personal opinion on the subject. That is really where the issue resides as content moderators are removing or suppressing content that they disagree with regardless of whether the content meets the criteria. And letting content that would be otherwise flagged or removed if they share the same political position. Clearly, there is evidence that an issue with consistency and bias goes on with how the reviews are undertaken. And there was some intent on doing so with the intent to somewhat influence election outcomes by suppressing certain valid speech. We know that there was coordination between politicians and leaders of social media companies. I do think something can be done, but unfortunately social media companies have not positioned themselves well in being a trusted source of the solution. And not sure the politicos are positioned well as those on the left want similar power that Russia and China enjoy. Social media is an institution that is important across American life. There are many people who lose their lives tragically because they use a cell phone while driving, while walking, or to capture dangerous photo opportunities. Yet, we understand that society should not ban cell phones in spite of personal misuse. We just hope that people learn from the mistakes of others, understand potential risks with misuse, and be better in the future to not only protect themselves, but everyone around them. That is similar to our approach with social media. Social media is the new way we communicate, entertain ourselves, and stay connected. It is how businesses message their customers, how consumers raise alerts, and how content is marketed beyond the traditional channels. Social media broke down the barriers between the powerful and the powerless because they can engage and share concerns. I agree with Jennifer that we need our discourse to be elevated beyond the reckless hysteria-driven attacks, rants, and trolling. These behaviors that have defined much of social media are starting to seep into everyday life where people do not have the convenient cover of an anonymous profile not connected to them personally.
I think there is a need for people to learn to have a healthier relationship with social media and have some perspective in its use. Too many people obsess over likes, shares, views, and the typical stat chasing that gives you visibility. But how many of these are actually from people that actually matter to you, your network, or a real person at all? There is no getting away from these factors. From a business perspective, these stats drive how you operate, how you market your brand, how you connect to your potential audience. Social media is essential for small business that do not have the billion-dollar budgets and ad-buying ability. Creating content that advances your exposure is important. It is important for this publication as well, an area we work to improve on. Is there a way social media companies can implement changes that make the platforms more user-friendly or address the areas of concern? I believe so. I think if moderators focus on downplaying the trolls and the personal attacks while allowing the exchange of valid arguments. For instance, I think social media could have handled the COVID-related discourse better if it did not obsess over suppressing the commentary and rather remove the amplification messages that did not offer in real value. I always believe the exchange of ideas is preferable than controlled dialogue. A thorough debate could have showed society that the vaccine was not panacea, but an important protection that is appropriate for most Americans. Was the demonizing the people who did not wish to get the vaccine worth it in the end? No. It became a wedge issue rather than a personal choice. Same with the masks. People knew that masks were not foolproof. But in most instances, you were better with a mask than without one. Instead, social media moderation gave platform to the radical position that you must wear a mask at times and even when outside. Rather than let a normal dialogue happen where people can understand where it most likely benefits them. I do think threats or real insightful information is important to address, but we must balance this with the need to avoid censorship. The criteria need to be public, consistent, and universal. Not when conveniently used to advance the political leanings of the moderator. I do find it interesting that a federal judge had to tell an American head of state that it cannot coordinate with social media companies on restricting speech. Again, comes down to whether one truly believes in democracy or is it buzzword. Autocrats restrict and regulate speech. In closing, I thank you for experiencing this special podcast of the Christopher Peter Review. Next week we will be back to our normal format and we will continue to discuss the important issues of our time. Until next time. A big thank you to all of you in the audience. Your viewership is appreciated and valued. Please follow the Christopher Peter Review on social media and continue to visit www.crcreview.com for new episodes. Thank you once again. Until next time.